0: Ephesians chapter 5 will be in today. We'll continue our trek through this chapter. Ephesians 5, and specifically we'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And as you get there, if you are in Christ, the scripture tells us, it confirms to us this, that you have the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling you. If you are a Christian, then you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. But what exactly does that mean? Or what does it what does it look like? How do we you know, know for sure that this is the case? How does the Spirit's presence in the life of a Christian change? That Christian. Today we continue on Paul's letter and we come to this injunction, this command of Paul to be filled with the Spirit. And so today I want us to see in our passage that the spirit-filled joy of Christ transforms our dispositions or our attitudes or our actions. The spirit-filled joy of Christ transforms our dispositions. So I want us to look at Ephesians 5. I want to read for us verses 18 through 21. I'd encourage you to follow along with me. This is God's word. And I entreat you to consider it such, to treat it as such, to receive it as such. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is God's word. Here we are in the midst of Paul's instruction to the church, right? And remember, he opens up this letter with praise and thanksgiving to God. And part of that praise and thanksgiving is this recognition that in Christ, the Christian is changed. In Christ, the Christian is transformed, right? We could look at, for instance, chapter 2, and we see uh, once we were walking in death, following the prince of the power of this world, of this air. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now, because of the mercy of God, because of the great love of God, we are alive in Christ. And we're more than just alive in Christ. We're set up in the heavenly places with Christ. We are uh, created in Christ for good works. Right, we could look at it in the and continuing on in chapter two, right? This this contrast between who we were outside of Christ as Gentiles and who we are now inside of Christ. We could look at how we were once dead to the promises, alienated from the life of God, but now we are brought in and made united, united in, in soul and spirit with those who are God's people. And we've been treading down this path now in chapter, beginning in chapter four of understanding then, okay, if that's true, what does that mean for us? If that's true, what does that mean for the church? We've been finding out what it means to walk worthy of our calling in in Christ. And we've seen that, that it's been, we've seen positive statements of that, right? Do this. And we've also seen negative statements of this. Don't do this. And indeed, in the first verse of our passage, we get both. You get a negative command and also a positive command. Don't be drunk, but be filled. And in the last passage, in particular in chapter 5, right before our verses today, we've been talking about this, di- this difference between the wise and the foolish. All right, We're, We are to walk, if you are in Christ, you are to walk in wisdom, not in the foolishness of this world. We are to understand the times. Take advantage of every opportunity before us to do the good works that the Lord has created us for. We are to, to understand, and this is wisdom, by the way, this is wisdom, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And now we come to our passage and I want to note for us a couple of things at the outset here, because it's not something that we would necessarily immediately understand uh, unless we have some grammar backgrounds. So and maybe if you're a grammarian, grammar it's a fun word, uh, you might catch this. But I want us to point out because what Paul does is in verse 18, he gives us a verb, a command, an imperative here be filled with the Spirit. And then he follows that up in verses 19 through 21 with five ing verbs, I-N-G verbs, or participles. If you know your English grammar, right, participles. And so those five ing verbs are addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. And so Paul has created a structure here for us to understand And it all falls under this heading of be filled. So let's begin there. Let's understand what it means to be filled with the spirit and see first in verse 18 filled. So we begin with filled in verse 18. And it begins and do not get drunk with wine. So the first thing that we have is a negative command. Do not be drunk. And it's, probably here not because there's a particular problem of drunkenness in the ephesian church so it's likely that this is not addressing a specific issue within the ephesian church although we know that this is an issue everywhere and as long as there has been wine and strong drink this has been an issue Uh, but it's probably not a particular issue to the ephesians and more likely it's here Because we just got off of Paul's transitioning to a different topic, but he's still going back and thinking through what it means to be wise and foolish, right? So we have to understand that in drunkenness is foolishness and in being filled with the spirit, we find wisdom, right? So uh, we could go back all the way to the book of Proverbs and find that to be drunk is to be a fool. To be drunk is to be a fool. For instance, look at Proverbs chapter twenty, verse one. Proverbs chapter twenty and verse one. And and I want us to to hear this, right? I want us to see this that drunkenness is foolishness. The wise one of Proverbs writes, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And then a couple chapters after that, Proverbs 23. This one's a little bit longer, verses 31 through 33. And we could actually go all the way down to verse 35. And maybe I will call an audible, go all the way to 35. Uh, Proverbs 23, starting in verse 31. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Is that interesting, right? Wine. It looks good. It looks appealing. But the wise person understand that the end of it is like a serpent's sting or an adder's sting, a serpent's bite. So what's the point of these proverbs? You know, the point in one sense is that this is the problem typically of mankind, of humankind, is that we think wine is good. We think wine is good. So... A lot of wine must be a lot of good. right? Sugar is good. A lot of sugar must be even better. But that's faulty log- logic here. And notice that Paul is not telling the Ephesians not to drink. Because again, this is, a, this is an issue that comes up in, in American Christianity for sure, in our community certainly, He says, he doesn't say, don't drink wine, but he does say, do not be drunk with wine. He is reminding the Ephesians of the foolishness and the sinfulness of being drunk, because indeed to be drunk with wine is debauchery or dissipation or excess. We could summarize the Proverbs this way. Fools let wine rule them. Fools are controlled by wine or strong drink. And accordingly, they suffer the lot of fools. Paul is commanding us not to be ruled by, not to be controlled by wine or strong drink. Again, in Christian culture, we see both extremes highlighted. On the one side, we have those who say to drink wine is to sin. Notice I said that very specifically in that way for that reason they say to drink wine to drink strong drink to drink an alcoholic beverage is sin and we have to realize that when we look at the bible nowhere do we find that to be the case but what do we find well we'll get there in a second and I want us to understand, too, that there is some wisdom in, and some value in that method, in that, in that mindset of drinking is problematic. And what do I mean by that? I mean by if you have a family history of alcoholism, if you yourself have a personal history of alcoholism, of drunkenness, that when you drink, You get drunk always. It always happens. That is always the course of what that does to you. Or if you have an addictive personality, you've maybe never tried drinking alcohol, but you know that you can be addicted to it because you get addicted to other things very easily. Then maybe what is best is to not drink it. And that's a matter of wisdom, not a matter of sin or not sin. And wisdom would say it's better not to drink because here's the reality, folks. You will not miss out on anything by not drinking. You will not miss out by not drinking alcohol. There was a day and age in which alcoholic drinks were necessary in that clean drinking water was scarce. And that one of the things that wine would do for you, for instance, is you add water to it and it purifies the water, right? The That which is happening in the uh, wine sanitizes, helps us sanitize the water. That's why, for instance, I think we see Paul recommend to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach ailments. In other words, take a little wine because if you're just drinking the water, and this was before the days of sanitation, right, especially, then you may run into uh, illness, but we don't have those same conditions today, do we? We don't have those same problems. And so wisdom may say, stay away entirely. Now, now we can go to the other extreme, right? So, so we, on the one side, have people who say to drink is sin. And then on the other side, we have people who so much embrace drinking that they think it's a harmless thing. They think it doesn't really matter how much we have or when we have it. There is this way of approaching that that does lead to drunkenness, right? And we kind of make light of it and say things like, well, you know, I just like to get a little buzz. That's what I'm drinking for. I just want to get a buzz. And here's the reality of what we find of any drug in that sense, is that our body becomes more and more conditioned to it and we need more and more to get the same result from it. And let me go ahead and say, if if everything in your life revolves around, it is dependent upon you having an alcoholic drink in, other, in order to unwind and to rest, there's something more serious going on. And that points to a more serious problem. And you have to realize this, the scripture is clear The scripture is clear here in Ephesians 5, right? Do not get drunk with wine. That's the command. Do not get drunk. For that is debauchery. The Bible is absolutely clear that drunkenness is sin. And by the way, if the question in your mind is, well, how many drinks can I have before I'm drunk? Again, that probably belies a deeper issue. If you're asking, how close can I get to the line of sin without crossing over into it, you have already have a problem. You're asking the wrong questions. Paul tells the Corinthians to break fellowship with any person who calls himself a Christian but is drunk. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 5.11 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one isn't that interesting we could also for instance look at first peter 4 Three through five, and I just give you this reference. You can look it up later. First Peter four, three through five. Where Peter says it's past time doing what the Gentiles do. And part of what the Gentiles do is they get drunk. And they even have drinking parties. Drunkenness parties. Parties would come together for the soul's sake of being drunk right and even here in our passage right being drunk with wine is not this little light thing it's debauchery right that's not a word we want to be described by it's dissipation indeed we know if we remember the qualifications for a pastor in Titus and Timothy right what what is one of the things that disqualifies a pastor dissipation debauchery children who are charged children of the pastor who are charged with debauchery It's that serious of a sin. So let us be wise about our use of alcohol. If you're going to use alcohol, be wise about its use. Do not get drunk with it. Understand what the will of the Lord is, and it's not to be ruled by it. And what does Paul instead say we should be ruled by? What is it that we should be controlled by? Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, be filled with the spirit. And so notice here that this is the comparison that Paul's setting up on the one hand, we could be controlled and filled with wine. And on the other hand, we could be controlled and filled with the spirit. And by the way, this is not the first time we see this comparison in the scriptures. If you remember back in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the early believers, what is it that some in the crowd say is going on with the believers, with the Christians? What does it say there? Acts 2.13. But others mocking said... Acts 2.13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So culturally, there's this comparison already within the Ephesian culture, within the Christian culture at the time, that you could be filled with wine or you could be filled with the Spirit. You could be controlled by alcohol or you can be controlled by the Spirit. There's this cultural link here for us. Now, this is not to say that those who are controlled by the spirit are acting like drunk people, right? Stumbling around and whatnot. But notice some of the comparisons. What does alcohol drunkenness make you do or say? Things you wouldn't normally do or say. Uh, remember that in Proverbs, it says drunkenness makes you utter perverse things from your heart, right? It it removes all kind of limitations on your ability to say no to your impulses. And I phrase it that way because isn't that what the Spirit does too? When we are filled with the Spirit, we do things we wouldn't normally do, and we say things we wouldn't normally say. Now, to say, well, what's the difference then? The difference is the outcome, right? The difference is what is the content of what we are speaking. That's very different when we're drunk or versus when we are filled by the spirit. What we do is very different when we're drunk versus what we're filled by the spirit. But notice that they both result in similar uh, inhibitions being removed. The outcome of drunkenness is folly and sin, but the outcome of the Spirit being filled with the Spirit is glory to God. So it's a very different thing, a very different thing, even though some of it overlaps. I think that's why we get this comparison here. Well, now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What what does this look like? And I will say here briefly just that some interpret What Paul is going to give us in the five ing verbs to come, that these are ways that we can be filled with the Spirit. In other words, we do these things in order to be filled by the Spirit. So that's one interpretive tact that we could take. Uh, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what Paul has intentions here uh, because nowhere do we see this kind of list of this is how you are to be filled with the Spirit is doing these things. Can we fill ourselves with the Spirit? Can we command the Spirit to fill us? I would remind us of John 3. Just like the wind goes where it wants and nobody understands, so to the Spirit. He goes where he wants. And we don't control that. So I would argue that what we find in these uh, successive verses is this is what it looks like when we are filled with the Spirit. In other words, these are results or these are the things that will come up that will show themselves, that will evidence themselves to say that we are filled with the Spirit. So let's look at these in turn. And first, let's find ourselves filled with singing, filled with singing in verse 19, filled with singing. In verse 19 begins, the first result of being filled by the Spirit is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So this is kind of surprising, isn't it? We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are to sing to one another. What is Paul getting at here? Well, first to the relief of some and maybe the sadness of others. Uh, The church is not a musical. So what what is not in view here, right, is not that when we come together, we start sing-songing everything that we say. It's not what's in view, right? Church is not a musical. Our corporate gatherings are not where we talk in song. Secondly, uh, we have these kind of three categories given to us, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, what are psalms? There's a whole book of them in the Bible, right? That's Likely what's in view here is the psalms. What are hymns? Um, you could go through some of the New Testament letters and scholars, and, and sometimes you'll see these set apart, kind of like poetry. You'll see like little poetic uh, moments in the scripture. Uh, and uh, some scholars argue that those are kind of pre uh, or early Christian hymns, uh, that, that these are songs created to the praise of God hymns right we we know what hymns are today we have a book of them that we call the hymn book right uh, these are songs and then what are spiritual songs uh, these are new songs these are songs uh, filled uh, with the spirit m- moved and motivated by the spirit uh, some take this to mean something like what we have in contemporary music right or contemporary praise music now we probably what paul is probably not doing here is trying to give us three discrete, distinct categories of music that we need to, like, unlock the key to in order to make sure we're we're doing things correctly. What's likely in view here is Paul's just using this synonyms to say what? All kinds of music, every kind of music that is lawful and good. And I'll kind of qualify that a little bit because uh, we can get into the weeds a little bit. Um, So we shouldn't probably worry so much about what qualifies as a psalm, what qualifies as a hymn, what qualifies as a spiritual song. We should probably just see that it's all kinds of music. Um, We should be singing to one another the psalms. We should be singing to one another ancient hymns that Christians 1,500 years ago sang. By the way, there are still some that kind of trickle up to us. There's not many. Uh, certainly, we know some songs from 500 years ago about, right? Uh, Mighty Fortresses Our God uh, by Luther and such. Uh, and then we sing new songs. Right? That's something we go to the book of Revelation, for instance, we find these kind of references, and everyone began to sing a new song. And we see that there. So it's not just discrete units here. The third thing we want to know is that our corporate worship, and this is really important, I want you to pay attention when I say this. Our corporate worship is more than just singing praise to God. Our corporate worship is more than just singing praise to God. And I know in our day and age, the reason why I emphasize that, I say that twice, and I say I want you to pay attention when I say this, is because I know in our day and age, in our culture, in church culture, what do we typically do or what do we typically see in that which is uh, probably the more popular or the most popular churches in America? You find things like the lights turn down real low so that you can't even see the person next to you. You hear the people on stage, uh, for instance, who are leading say something like, or maybe they don't express this in the service. Maybe they express it in their meetings as they're developing the service. Is they say things like, "We want to create an atmosphere where you can worship God. We want to create a, create a uh, atmosphere that really puts you in the mood that you're worshiping God." They try and create an experience that's just you and God. However, when we worship, what Paul is directing our attention to here, when we worship, we are not just having a private, individual experience. In the desire for a private, individual experience of worship says more about American culture than it does the command of God in the scriptures. Paul is directing our attention to the reality that as we worship God, we also address one another. We speak to one another. We sing to one another. We teach the truth of God to one another in the songs that we sing. Because songs have doctrine. And even the saccharine songs of contemporary Christian music also have doctrine, even if it is so watered down that you could barely even taste it. And indeed, what we may be teaching in those songs, by the way, what the doctrine may be teaching of those, uh, what I say, saccharine songs, overly sweet, overly emotional uh, contemporary Christian music, What we may be teaching is that we should emotionally feel a certain way. And that's the doctrine, right? The doctrine is worship of God means I get little butterflies in my tummy or I get little goosebumps on the back of my arms. And that's what worship is. And I'm not worshiping unless those things are true. That's teaching and training us. Songs are doctrine and they teach us about God and they can teach us the truth about God in ways that stick with us that me standing up and preaching to you won't. How did you learn the ABCs? And if I just said that triggered the music in your head, what does that teach you? That sometimes singing something links in our brain in ways that rote memorization, so just saying A, B, C, D, that that doesn't work as well as singing. We have to realize that as others in history have, whether that's for good or bad, that as the hymn book goes, so too does the congregation. Meaning if we sing heresy, We shouldn't be surprised when we embrace heresy. When we sing songs of truth, we shouldn't be surprised when those truths come to our mind. Think of what the Psalms did. If you survey the New Testament, you'll find that there's a lot of quotations from the book of Psalms. Why is that? Because it was something that they regularly sang. Right? They didn't have access to the scripture in the ways that we do today. So how did they memorize scripture? They sang it. Those were the things that they knew and heard and, and could immediately call to mind. So what's our takeaway from all this? Christian, when you are gathered in corporate worship, sing. Sing loud enough so that the person next to you Can actually hear you. Don't peanut butter watermelon it. If you don't know what that is, you can ask me afterwards. Right? Because when you sing out loud, you are building up your brother or sister in Christ in the truth. You're giving encouragement to your fellow Christian. So, that's what we do. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. We sing and we teach one another. Continuing on in verse 19, we see more singing, uh, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So these are the second and the third ing verbs here, participles. We sing and we make melody to the Lord with our hearts And again, probably what's in view here is a vocal component and a musical component. Uh, That is everything. Again, everything of song and music we should incorporate to the praise and glory of God. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We have in view here in this verse, worship, right? We're, We're talking about corporate worship. We're talking about praise of God in words and in music. In the beginning of this verse, we have worship as kind of a horizontal component where we address one another. And now in the latter part of this verse, we have a vertical component when we are realizing who is our worship directed to? To God. So let's not overcorrect and think that the worship service is one. So what we want to avoid When we talk about corporate worship is one, we want to avoid thinking that worship is all about our private individual experience with God. It's about addressing one another. There is a corporate component to worship because here, here's the reality friends. If it was only about our private individual experience, we would probably better have a, have a better time at home by ourselves Than coming together, where other people irritate us, make noises that distract us, have little babies that start grunting and crying. All right, if that's all it's about, if it's all about us, there's no need for us to gather. But God calls us to gather to show us it's not all about us, right? So we don't want to overcorrect and think that. But we also want to not overcorrect and think that worship And corporate worship is all about us singing to one another, right? So even though I gave a long explanation there of what God is saying, I gave that because I think we missed that component. But also, I don't want us to think that that's the only part of corporate worship. We are gathered to give God the glory due his name. It's about praising God. And what kinds of praise should we be offering to God? All kinds. And notice here the how we do it. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, and and again, what's the meaning of heart here? It's It's our being. It's who we are. It's our character. It's what drives us. Remember what Jesus says about the heart in the Gospels. It's not that you eat with unclean hands that defiles you. It's that you have an unclean heart and out of your heart comes all kinds of evil things. But if we're filled with the spirit, what should happen instead is out of our heart should come all kinds of singing and making music to the Lord. So what's the distinction here? What are we talking about here? What does this look like? Well, we have to confess that this can look like we come to God with hypocrisy. What do I mean? We sing a song like great and awesome is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. And what we really mean in our heart is God's okay. Or, you know, he's, he may be a mighty fortress to some, but he's not a mighty fortress to me. I prefer my own way to, to keep myself safe. I'm my own bulwark. By the way, if you want to know what a bulwark is, go look that up later. We would do well to remember Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. John 4, verses 23 to 24. John 4, 23 to 24. But the hour is coming, Jesus says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We must worship in spirit and truth. So what that means is that what is coming from our lips as we sing is a true reflection of what we believe we should remember God's rebuke of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day in Isaiah 29:13 Isaiah 29:13 again here's another component of this here's what i mean by this this is what hypocrisy is and the lord said because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men dot, dot, dot. Notice what God says there. They draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But who they really are, their heart is far from me. And as this is true in Isaiah's day, for the word being taught, for the words that they were said, it's also true for the words that are sung, that words that are being sung, So, I would ask you, beloved, when you sing, when we sing together these hymns, when we sing together these songs, when we sing together the psalms, do you mean it? Do you believe it? Worship should not be rote. It shouldn't be repetition. Everything that we do should be an expression of of the reality of the truth we believe about God. And I understand, by the way, like so, so I get this, that we don't always feel that. Sometimes it's because of sin. Right? We have sin we have to deal with. Or sin that we have confessed still leaves us cold-hearted. Sometimes it's because of depression, right? We, we are in a season or a period of sadness that is, is lasting. Sometimes it's just the common cold. We don't feel the emotion of what we are saying. We don't always feel the emotional weight of what we are singing. But we have to believe it. And so I would invite you examine your experience of worship when you sing is it from your heart is it from the truth of what you believe about God or is it forced Because the spirit filled person sings and makes music to the Lord from their heart So if you confess Christ as Lord and that's not your experience you need to run a diagnostic You need to examine what's going on. You need to ask a brother and sister in Christ to help give you perspective. Because all of this is not about you being a failure, but it's about the grace of God in your life. Do you realize that? We fail as Christians. We miss the mark. We sin against God. But if we are truly in Christ, then our failure is not final. Sin does not rule us any longer. Because Christ bore our sin on the tree. He bore the wrath of God for you, beloved. He is not pleased when you sin or when you approach him with cold hearted worship, but he is moved to help you. Christ himself intercedes for the saints. The spirit that we are to be filled with utters groanings too deep for words in prayer to the Father. And what does the father do? What does the father love to do? To abundantly give to his children all things, everything that they need for life and godliness. And the church should be an extension of that. The church is a place for redeemed sinners to come together to encourage one another with the word of God and in song. There is great joy. Listen listen to this. There is great joy in coming alongside a brother or sister in Christ and going before the throne of God to find the mercy and grace you need in the time of need. So don't walk in graceless lands. Don't wade into the wastes of this world thinking, well, this is my lot. Seek Christ. Seek brothers and sisters in Christ who can sing to you the songs of Christ. And by the way, this doesn't exclude all this, that sometimes we need to sing songs of lament. Lament is a true expression of what our heart is feeling before God. But notice that the laments, even in the Psalms, always end. Uh, Let me qualify that better because I don't want to misstate. We'll find that the laments in the Psalms often end but I will trust in God. He is my trust and my hope. We could look at even the book of Lamentations and find joy comes in the morning. God is still merciful and gracious. And sometimes our songs are joy, right? Sometimes we are, so, we are blessed by God in such a way that it is easy for us to sing with joy. We should. And all of these songs should be sung to the praise and glory of our God. So being filled with a severe, it means singing. And I want us to see next that it also, we are filled with giving thanks. In verse 20, filled with giving thanks. So the fourth reality that flows from the Spirit's presence in, in the life of a believer is giving thanks. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would do well to remember that this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And notice both there and here, we are told the kind of circumstances we are to give God thanks in. And what are they? All, everything, all circumstances, always. And this means that yes, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we give God thanks Even when the Lord brings into our occasions hardship, we give thanks. Well, how can this be? Well, we could remember Romans 8. For God works all things together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And how do difficult circumstances work for our good? Well, we cannot always see the ways in which this is true. Sometimes we do when we're on the other side of that difficulty, right? On, that, on the other side of that hardship. And some circumstances, we will not know until we stand before God in heaven and we can look and see with clear vision and say, Oh God, thank you for that. We do not know, uh, we do not always know the way that God uses these circumstances, but we know that God does use even hardships to grow us, sanctify us, and deepen our reliance upon him. And none of this is to belittle the, the feeling of these circumstances, the feelings of the difficulties that we face. It won't necessarily lessen the pain, and whether that's physical pain or emotional pain, but we know that God will redeem even these We would do well to remember the difficulties that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. And what did they do when they were hungry and thirsty? Well, we know what they did, right? They were praising God. They said, God, we thank you for all that you have done for us so far. And we know that you will deliver us in this situation too. And God, we pray that you would do this. Is that what they did? No. All right. What did they do? They grumbled. They weren't thankful even to the point of saying, and this is remarkable, they were slaves. And Exodus 16 verses 2 through 3 tells us that when they were hungry, they said, man, I wish I was back in Egypt where I had my pots of meat and all the dainties that I could muster. And Paul writing to the Corinthian church highlights this for us. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 9 through 11. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, or destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not grumble against God and be destroyed. We must instead do what? Give thanks. We must learn from the failings of those who have gone before us and remember that God delivers his people always. And whether that's immediately in the moment, in the circumstance, or whether that's ultimately in heaven when they are vindicated. I think here of those martyrs under the altar of God in heaven that we see in the book of Revelation, where they say, How long, O Lord, will you let these evil men continue? Vindicate us. Show the truth. Judge those who are sinful. So our heads may be lopped off, but God redeems even that. We are more than victors in Christ, and so let us give thanks. And to whom do we give thanks? God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, If we are filled with the Spirit, if you are filled with the Spirit, believer, you will give thanks. When I was originally thinking of this and writing this thought out, I I wrote down it's a natural outflow of the Spirit's work. But then I went back and corrected it. It's a supernatural outflow of the Spirit's work. It's not natural to us. It's a supernatural outflow of the Spirit's work. The Spirit will allow us to see that even the most difficult times in our life come from the providential hands of a loving God and thus redeemed by Him for our good. So dress one another in songs, sing and make melody to the Lord from your heart Give thanks always and in all things. And let's see, lastly, filled with submitting in verse 21, filled with submitting. Verse 21 reads, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we come to this verse, we have a question of its connection uh, to our passage today and the passage that follows. And the reason I say that is because verse 22 doesn't actually have a verb in it in the Greek. There's no verb there. And so the verb seems to be inferred by verse 21. So should verse 21 go with verse 22 and following? Or should we understand it to go with our passage today? Because we, as we have been talked about, as we have seen, right? There's these five ing verbs and submitting is one of the ing verbs. It's part of this pattern that Paul is using in this portion of scripture. So where does this verse belong? And I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows what he's doing, and he's given us a transitional verse here. So it goes with both. So the answer is both. I said all that to say both. Uh, it's a transitional verse. It, it joins what we're talking about being filled with the Spirit means, and it also joins with what comes after in discussing, uh, in discussing marriage. The second thing I want us to, to understand is in verse 21. Depending on your translation, you may see uh, the words "out of reverence" or "out of fear for Christ," or you may say "out of fear for God." And there's a manuscript difference here. It seems that the best manuscripts have the have that word Christ in there. So it seems that Christ was original, and um, somewhere along the way, uh, it was sub- God was substituted in there in some of the manuscripts. Um, but we find in the most significant manuscripts, the word Christ. Those matter aside, what is Paul directing us to? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul will go on, as I have already said, and discuss some, some actual particular situations in, of what this looks like. For instance, between wife and husband, or children and their parents, or slaves and their masters. But here... We're talking about among believers and the church. There is to be mutual submission and certainly what must be in view in part is Philippians two, three through five, Philippians two, three through five, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In humility, we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. What does this mean? We don't look only to our own needs, we look to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not, by the way, Paul doing away with all notion of authority or or distinction of roles. That much is evident when we consider who is Christ Jesus, King and Lord. He is the head of the church. He has authority and rule that nobody else in all the universe has. And yet at the same time, what did Christ do when he was here? John 13 describes to us, tells us how as the disciples sat to eat, he washed their feet. And What's significant about that? Well, the feet in the ancient days were dirty, gross. You know, they didn't have close-toed shoes like we do today. There's There weren't paved roads like we have today. And the washing of the feet was normally reserved for slaves or those who were the outcasts in society. Jesus, as rabbi, could have expected his disciples to wash his feet. That is what would have been culturally appropriate. And Jesus blows that out of water, by kneeling and washing their feet. And Jesus tells them in John thirteen, fourteen, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet, and he gave us an example. And I just want us to kind of put this example in perspective. The Lord of all creation stoops wash his creatures feet that's remarkable that's remarkable how much more should we lowly things help one another and notice that what paul writes in ephesians here this submitting to one another is out of reverence out of fear out of respect out of understanding for christ the proud heart that is unwilling to submit to his brothers in Christ and to serve them from their worship of Christ is a heart that is not filled with the Spirit. i going to say that again. The proud heart that is unwilling to submit to his brothers in Christ and to serve them from their worship of Christ is a heart that is not filled by the Spirit. And again, all this is not to say that there's no authority or distinction of authority or roles within the church. That's to deny the testimony of the scripture. But understand that even authority is used in service to those they lead. Authority used rightly glorifies God and right authority serves. That's true in the political world. I know we don't think that way and I know our politicians don't think that way. They think we serve them. That's a misunderstanding of their role. They serve us. That's true on the job site. Managers. You are to serve your direct reports those who report to you. Employers, you're to serve your employees. And that's true in the church. Let us fear the Lord, brothers and sisters. Let us have proper humility, respect, and submission to those who are in authority over us And that's certainly a challenge in our culture, which every message produced by a culture, by the way, includes go watch the Disney Channel sometime and see the kinds of discussions uh, that it happens. In our culture, we are to defy authority and we are to question it. And by the way, if you watch something like the Disney Channel, what you also find is that authority is stupid and foolish and out of touch children don't obey your parents because they don't know what they're talking about anyways that's the message of our culture but the spirit-filled joy of christ transforms our disposition it changes how we relate to one another how we relate to our circumstances how we talk to god how we sing to god how we sing to one another in christian you are called to be controlled by the spirit you're to walk in the spirit we've already seen it in ephesians you are not to grieve the spirit You are not to be controlled by wine, alcohol, pot, or any of a number of other substances that are available in our day and age. As Paul points out here, when you are filled by the Spirit, your disposition changes. You begin to address one another uh, in God-praising songs. You use your voice not just to describe the glories of God, but also to instruct your fellow Christian you you give thanks to God in all circumstances you realize by the spirit that whatever before you is not God forsaking you but his divine love for you and it's difficult sometimes for us to see that as we wander in the wilderness but we need we need to never forget the good works of God towards us and being filled with the spirit also transforms how we relate to authority and it transforms how authority relates to itself we willingly submit ourselves to those in authority over us out of fear of christ if there is an authority god has established it that doesn't mean that it's always rightly used right Uh, romans 13 tells us that there is no governing authority that is not established by god does that mean every governing authority does the right thing no but that's that's between them and god ultimately But we cannot buy into our culture's notion that authority is de facto bad. And as we wade into the next sections of this chapter, we'll find how uh, the Spirit changes how we relate to one another in a family. And we might rightly ask, what are the kinds of things that fill our family? Is there grumbling and complaining? Or is there thanksgiving? Are there songs of praise to God? Or there are songs of worship to the evil one, and his ideals. By the way, in saying that, I'm not saying that secular music is bad per se, but if it's the measure of your heart's content, if if what is, if the things you speak are only the things of secular music, that's that's a bad sign. That's a red flag. Indeed, we should not be. M- It should not be the measure of our conversation with one another. It belies the truth of what we profess to believe. In this, we need the wisdom of God. Some of us may be better served by never listening to secular music again. Uh, But I'm not saying to you uh, what some did when I was growing up in youth group. You need to go home today and destroy all your uh, secular music CDs. Although I know... We, we don't have that. I guess you don't have to go home today and delete all your Apple music playlists or Amazon music playlists. I'm not saying that per se. But in the end, it's a question of what are you controlled by? Are you controlled by those things? Or are you controlled by God? And what does the evidence of your life prove? If you are filled by the Spirit, that is, if you are in Christ, you should evidence the fruit of the Spirit. Part of that fruit is... Singing praise to God. Singing to one another praises of God. Spilling over into thanksgiving to God for everything that is going on in your life right now. That's a true statement whether or not you have good things going on or bad things going on. And I know it's hard. And I know we fail at that because I fail at that. But there is grace sufficient. In this, you need to ask God to search and try you. You, Maybe what you need to do this afternoon is go before God and say, God, why is it I don't like singing in corporate worship? Why is it that I don't want to submit to right authority? God-ordained authority. Ask Him for help in examining your own heart. He'll reveal the truth to you. You may not like it. But he will reveal the truth to you. And understand too that if you are not controlled by the spirit of God, you are still controlled by something. And that's the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this may well be evident in your life. The truth is evident in the way in which you walk in this world, the way that you talk, the things that you talk about, the things that you sing about, the thing that you think are thankful for about, give thanks for. And it may seem like a little thing to you and it may not bother you, you may may not care, but understand this, listen closely to this. All those who follow after the prince of the power of the air will join him when God pours out judgment on him and on all who deny Christ. And also understand further, Satan does not rule hell. It's not his personal fiefdom. He is under the wrath of God. It's a place of his torment as it will be yours, unless you repent of your sins, unless you turn from them and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and join the evil one, bearing the wrath of God forever. That's how serious sin is, and that's how holy God is. But Christ Jesus came, and he lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for his people's sins, and he rose from the grave vindicating himself and ascended to heaven, bringing to his people grace. God pours forth his unearned favor on sinful people. This friend can be you. You can know the grace of God in Christ, but you must turn to him. You must confess your sins and plead for the grace of God. You must call upon Jesus. And when you do, God gives his spirit to his people. And as they are filled with the Spirit, they sing, they exude thanksgiving and thankfulness, they fear Christ and humbly serve one another. May God give you the grace to know that these things are true. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful. God, we are grateful for that which you have done, for all that you have done in our lives. God, we are thankful for bringing us here to this moment to hear your word. And, Father, we pray that it would sink deep into us, that it would root its way into us. Lord, that we would understand these things. Father, that you give us your spirit to to regenerate and renew us, if that's never been done before, that we may understand the truth of your word and that we may live it out. And, Father, we confess that we fail you too often Father, we fail, we grumble against the circumstances in which you have placed us. Father, forgive us for the content of our mouth, that which flows from our heart, and transform us, fill us with your Spirit. Lord, that songs of praise may be on our lips always, that thanksgiving may be on our lips always. Father, that we would humbly submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Father, that we would understand the body of Christ, the church, that we would understand that Christ is our head, that he is the authority for us. O God, help us in these things that we may bring Praise to you always that we may give you the glory that is due your name. And so we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.